You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Martin Blazer, who is a professor of medicine and the director of the Center for Advanced Biotechnology and Medicine at Rutgers University. He's the author of, of this book right here, Missing Microbes, How the Overuse of Antibiotics is Fueling Our Modern Plagues. And also, I think the founder of, if I got this right, the Bacteria Museum, which I have to it's a visual museum, so I don't have to uh, wear my hazmat suit when I go there, I, I presume. Welcome, Martin. Yeah, thank you. The Bacteria Museum was an idea ahead of its time. I don't think it's, it's no longer in existence. It was, it was a virtual museum, but we started about 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. Well, I think that the story of medicine is one of uh, continual progress, right? Uh, humans have gotten healthier and healthier over the years due to modern medicine both you know, theory and practice, our life expectancies have, have gotten longer, our quality of life has gotten better. But of course, at the same time, we've seen a rise in certain diseases, uh, certain ailments. While most have gone down, we've seen some go up, such as things like uh, diabetes, certain types of allergies and immunological disorders, certainly things related to obesity. And, and some people wonder if this is a necessary byproduct of the efforts that we have made against those other diseases, in particular, the efforts against infectious diseases and the war on bacteria. And I, and I think your book, Missing Microbes, which I now think is probably about, it's almost 15 years old, but it, it really tells this, this story of how we kind of came to understand the potential drawbacks that come along, or at least the, the, the cost or the price that we pay for the wonderful antibiotics that we've developed over the 20th century. So I want to hear a bit about your story because you're, you're, I guess, a heliobacteriologist, which is a thing. And that story of the discovery of H. pylori and its role in gastric ailments, I mean, that really is one of the profound stories of the 20th century. And I think that when the story first came out, you, you were very skeptical, but it has subsequently upended your life and shaped your research trajectory ever since. So maybe talk a little bit about, I heard earlier, we were talking how you're an economics major. Hey, how did you wind up getting into the study of, of bacteria? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for your question. Like you, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I went to Penn during the Vietnam War. And I realized I was an economics major because I was very, I was interested in the topic, but I realized that I would never be very good at it because at a certain level, economics is all math and I'm good in math, but I'm not that good. So I, I realized I, I could never be terribly successful at it. And I wasn't sure what to do. And my parents said, why don't you become a doctor? Like many parents do. And I had nothing against it. So when I was a junior in college, I, I took organic chemistry and Unlike most people, I, I liked it very much. And I found it was really interesting. And so I decided, I guess I'm going to be a doctor. And I went to medical school and I trained in internal medicine, which is a very broad field of medicine. And then I thought I was going to go out into practice, but the practice world didn't seem that exciting to me. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll do a little more training. So I decided to take a fellowship and 
really by circumstance of fate, I, I landed up in a fellowship in infectious disease. It, it was a, it was just it was almost a chance. And uh, I started that on July 1, 1977. And on July 10th, 1977, I was asked to see a patient with a, a, a weird infection that I had never heard of, an organism that was called Campylobacter fetus. And I began to study that. I had to give a talk about some subject as part of my fellowship. I talked about Campylobacter fetus. And then the very, very diminutive Asian woman came up to me and she said, I'm interested in that organism too. Uh, her name was Wenlan Lu Wong. We worked together for the next 10 years, a very close partnership. And Campylobacter fetus uh, and moved me toward an organism called Campylobacter jejuni, which causes a diarrheal disease. I went to the CDC, I studied diarrheal disease, and then a new Campylobacter was discovered in the stomach called gastric Campylobacter-like organism. Uh, and that's the organism that we now know today as Helicobacter pylori. And so it was like one step after another. And then all that led me into the microbiome. So a series of accidents, and I just kept following the path to see where it would take me. And now it's 45 years. It's been a great ride. Well, I mean, the germ theory is something which pretty much barely existed in the beginning of the 19th century. And by the end of, or at least the early part of the 20th century, it had pretty much been, you know, 100% accepted by the medical community. And the more we understood about kind of the role of infectious agents, the role of bacteria in particular on illness and, and disease, kind of the more it became the target of all of our interventions, right? So there was a point, I guess, where, you know, the only good bacteria was a, was a dead bacteria. And I think that was probably the state of the art when you began your medical practice, correct? Yeah, well... Yes and no. I mean, the germ theory was a great advance. It still is a great advance. We, we, we could just look around and see COVID-19 for us to understand that there are germs that are, that are harmful to people. And we need to control such germs so that we can have healthy lives. COVID is an example of an epidemic germ, but there are endemic germs as well. So there are plenty of bad germs, but as you point out, there's been a tremendous focus on the idea that microbes are bad. A germ, that, that's, a, that's a negative term. Kids grow up learning about germs. Companies sell products fighting those bad germs. But in fact, we live in a bacterial world. The bacteria formed the biosphere. Bacteria were the first form of life on Earth. And they have been and continue to be the dominant form of life on Earth. And as Stephen Gould said, was, is now, and will be till the world ends because we are built in a bacterial world. And most of the bacteria in the world are, are not directly relevant to us. You might say they're neutral, but there are many bacteria that are beneficial to us in many ways. And I think in the last 20 years or so, there's been a growing appreciation about these beneficial microbes and, and how, in, in fact, our human body is a partnership between us and our microbes. It's very clear it's a partnership. And so the things that we're doing that have effects on our microbes, these are unforeseen, you know, collateral effects. 
Missing Microbes, the book is about how we've depleted so many of our, our beneficial microbes and, and the consequences of doing so. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the intellectual history of the kind of microbiome, right? I think now there's pretty widespread appreciation of the, the symbiotic aspects or use this term, amphibiotic aspects. What were sort of the early developments in, in this area? When did people first start to think about the, the symbiotic aspects of, of bacteria for humans? Well, you know, the, the, the human discovery of microbes is in the 17th century. Von Leeuwenhoek invented the microscope and he, he looked at his own saliva and he saw these, all these little moving objects, which he called animalcules, which we know are protozoa and bacteria. And so the world of science has been aware of, of bacteria, at least for a few hundred years. And, but as you point out, the, some of the great advances of the 19th century, the advances of Pasteur and, and Robert Koch and others, found the, the cause. There were many terrible plagues of humankind, like cholera, typhoid fever, and tuberculosis. And they, these all turned out to be due to bacteria, you know, what we call the strep throat and different kinds of pneumonia. These, these were all serious diseases pertussis, tetanus, so many important diseases were caused by bacteria. And that's why there was this focus on, on bad organisms. But really from the, oh, even from the time of Pasteur, there was a realization that there were beneficial organisms. And in microbiology and in environmental microbiology, veterinary microbiology, and in human microbiology, we used to call the microbes that live in us, which we could, today we call it the microbiota. In the old days, we used to call it the normal flora. We doctors knew that there was a normal flora and that it, it was a two-edged sword, that it, it had benefit to us, but it could get out of control. In other words, we have trillions of organisms in our intestine. And if there's a knife wound or a bullet wound in it, some of those organisms move over like one inch from the center of the intestine into your body tissues, that, that's what's going to kill you. Those organisms are in the wrong place. So we, we already knew that, that the beneficial organisms had a bad side. And over time, we learned that they had a good side, that these organisms make vitamins for us and they help us digest our food and that they train our immune system and they help us fight against invaders. So the, all, all of this, those general outlines were, were known 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, I was, I was kind of amazed at the, at the list of things that you mentioned are influenced by bacteria in the body, in, including the menstrual cycle, you know, even blood pressure, right, mood, digestion. And you say, I think that pretty much all the chemicals in our blood are, are derived in part from, from bacteria. Not all, but a very sizable fraction. I mean, I, I, I think the simplest statement is that human life is a partnership between we and our cells and the microbes, and they're in constant communication, and they're keeping us alive. And you cite the numbers where I think the number of, of cells, bacterial cells, outnumbers human cells by over three to one, and the number of bacterial genes outnumbers human genes by a, a much, much, much larger uh, factor, right? 
Yeah, at least 100 to 1. So we're, you know, if we just do a census of the genes, the unique genes in the human body, we're 99% bacterial. So by the way, it's not just humans, it's, it's actually every animal because bacteria existed in the world before plants and animals. So every plant, every animal that evolved had to evolve in a bacterial world. And they formed friendships and alliances so that the good bacteria keep away the bad bacteria. Plants have enemies, animals have enemies. And th this has all happened in animals over the last 500 million years. This, this is not a recent event. Every animal has its own microbiota that is not accidental, that has evolved, has co-evolved with its host. Now, I'm pretty sure that I'd be dead by now if antibiotics had a couple of infections. And, and I think you describe in the book when you had sort of a paratyphoid incident, which you probably were saved by antibiotics as well. But the concern today is about the overuse of antibiotics. And I think that there's two concerns, right? One is that we're stimulating the development of resistant bacteria. We should probably talk about that, but also how the microbiome is being disrupted, which opens the door for all, all sorts of bad things. But maybe to just dig into the resistance issue, could you talk a bit about how much antibiotic usage is there right now? I mean, the statistics that you provided in the book were, again, it was 15 years ago and they're pretty dramatic. You talked about some trends that might be moving in the other way, but ha what's happened with those trends? Where are we in terms of antibiotic usage in, in humans? And then we can talk a bit about in, in livestock. Well, there are many things to say, and I'll try to say them in a logical order. The first thing is that the discovery of antibiotics is one of the great discoveries of the 20th century of, of humankind, because antibiotics allowed us to control serious bacterial infections. And the discovery was so great that both physicians and other healthcare providers and the general public recognized the miraculous nature of antibiotics, that somebody could be near dead, they take an antibiotics and, and they're going to live and, and do well. And antibiotics have transformed medicine. Now you can't have major surgery without the antibiotic umbrella or transplantation or chemotherapy. And and the list goes on. So we have a view that antibiotics are miraculous drugs. Everyone you ask will tell you the same thing. And as a result, doctors and health practitioners began using antibiotics for more and more marginal needs. Not just the person dying of pneumonia, but the, the person coming to the doctor who has a cold or who has an ear infection. These are, these are not life-threatening infections. So antibiotics began to be overused shortly after they were introduced. And the amount of overuse is tremendous. Recently, the CDC estimated that about a third of the antibiotics used in, in the United States in people are unnecessary. My own estimate is that it's about 60%, that it's, it, that it's more than half of all the antibiotics used are unnecessary. So now the question is, when you use a lot of antibiotics, what happens? Before we get into that, why do you, I mean, is the, is it based on the belief that, well, you know, there's no negative impact. So even if there's yeah, a marginally that, positive it. impact, it, it, it pays to do this. Yes, that, that's exactly, that, that's the point is that we have overestimated the benefit of antibiotics and we have underestimated the cost. There's economics. 
underestimated the cost because the, the typical thought of the medical practitioner, and you've probably heard it in your life, the doctor will say, well, this might not help you, but it won't hurt. But maybe it does hurt. And and and, and missing microbes, I and further work, it's clear that there is a cost, a biological cost to using antibiotics. And if if the use is marginal enough, then the cost is going to exceed the benefit. If, you, if you're dying of pneumonia, then the benefit is huge. But if, if you have an ear infection, maybe the, the benefit is so small or, or that it, in fact, it may be negative. The cost may be greater than, than the benefit. So one important point is that it, antibiotics were discovered and utilized and before there was a great understanding about the microbiome. And there was a belief, which turns out not to be correct, that after you take an antibiotic, it'll perturb the microbiome for a while, and then everything will bounce back to normal. That's, that's the widespread belief. In fact, it's not true. And there's more and more evidence that it's not true. I, I think that every time you take an antibiotic, a couple of the thousands of species in your body go extinct. They're, they're gone. You know, if you have billions of one strain, it's not going to go extinct. But what, what if at a certain time you only have hundreds of another strain? It'll be gone. So what, what's clear is that antibiotics were designed to treat pathogens, to treat bad organisms. But when you take an antibiotic, it goes into your bloodstream. It will affect the bacterial populations everywhere in your body. You might have an ear infection, but it's, it's going to go in your bloodstream and it will affect the bacterial populations in your skin, in your gut, a woman's vagina, in their mouth. And antibiotics are selective agents. They will inhibit or kill some organisms and other organisms will be naturally resistant to it. The ones that are inhibited will do bad. The ones that are resistant will do well. So the population shifts. There are changes in the population. So antibiotics have collateral effects. So I, I think about the effects of antibiotics on human ecology like the proverbial iceberg. The tip of the iceberg is antibiotic resistance. We've known about that actually in Fleming's Nobel Prize speech. He talked about antibiotic resistance. When he got the Nobel Prize in 1945 for the discovery of penicillin, he already talked about resistance. We've known about it now you know, for almost 80 years. But the body of the iceberg is the effects of the antibiotic on the microbiome and on how it has changed the microbiome and then leads to changes in physiology and ultimately to risk of disease. That's the body of the iceberg. Science is just understanding it. And one of the reasons I wrote Missing Microbes, actually it was published eight years ago, but the ideas go back for me almost 20 years. It took me a long time to get it on paper. And, you know, my crusade, I have two crusades. One is to do the work to understand exactly what antibiotics are doing and how we can counteract the bad part so we can, we can improve our use of antibiotics. And my other crusade is to tell people about this whole issue because most people don't understand. They don't understand that just as we're damaging our macroecology, which we call climate change, we're damaging our microecology, the ecology inside us, due to things like antibiotics, but there are others. Antibiotics are just the, the biggest actor, but there are many other aspects, such as different 
food additives, cesarean sections, chlorinated water. I could go on. Well, well, if we look at those two issues separately, right, the impact on the microbiome is a product of the kind of indiscriminate nature of the antibiotics, right? So, you know, we use these broad spectrum antibiotics and it's like carpet vomit, right? So in order to get after the one bad bacteria, we inevitably have all of this collateral damage, right? And one solution to that that you talk about in the book is developing kind of more precision antibiotics. Okay. Now with, with precision antibiotics, you'd still have the concern about antibiotic resistance, right? For that specific bacterium, right? Yes. But by the way, this is, this gets us into another economic issue. And that is that the whole marketplace for antibiotics is, is broken. It is, is broken in many, many regards because, because of modern industry and science, most antibiotics are very inexpensive to produce. The cost of a course of antibiotics, the actual manufacturing course of a course of antibiotics might be less than a dollar for, for all of them. If we wanted to develop narrow spectrum antibiotics, it'd be a big development cost. But why would you do, use a $200 antibiotic when you could get away with, the, with a $5 antibiotic? But that's what we will need to do because it's a false economy. That $5 antibiotic is a false economy. And, you know, our work and the work of others and work since my book has been published shows that a very strong association between early life use of antibiotics in children, young children, and the risk that they will develop obesity and asthma and food allergies and celiac disease and uh, neurodevelopmental problems like ADHD and learning disability and some evidence for autism as well. These are all the diseases that have been rising during the antibiotic era. And it might be a coincidence, but in fact, more and more data is coming out that it is not a coincidence. This is one of the costs of our tremendous use of antibiotics. So imagine a scenario 10 years from now, you know, where a mother comes in with a kid who has a strep throat, which needs to be treated. And we can say, you know, we can give you the broad spectrum antibiotic, you know, but that will increase your child's chance that they'll become obese, get juvenile diabetes, become autistic, et cetera, develop asthma, you know, 1%, 2%, 3%, and it's cumulative across courses. The more courses, the greater the chance. Or we can treat you with the $100 antibiotic, you know, which, is, which is just going to get strep. It's just going to be narrowly focused. Which do you choose? And the parents are going to choose the one that is more rational. So the marketplace will absorb the greater cost once we educate people and once we can actually develop the products and actually develop the diagnostics. One of the big advantages of, of a broad spectrum antibiotic is that even if you don't know what's causing it, you can generally make it better with the antibiotic because they're broad in spectrum. But that has collateral costs. That, as you say, that's the carpet bond. I, I'm hoping that one day we will have a strep psyllin that will just be against strep and an E. coli psyllin and a Klebsiella psyllin and a Pseudomonas psyllin or, or whatever we'll call them so that once we know this person has an infection with E. coli, we're going to just treat that organism and that's going to that's gonna minimize the collateral damage. Well, I want, I want to get into the specific research around the harms associated with overprescription, but it, 
What about the incentives of, of the doctors? I mean, I, I think it sounds like you're, you have big faith in, in kind of just education and awareness, right? So the, the, the patient has a choice, doctor has a choice and, and they can work through all the different trade-offs, but you know, isn't there also pressure on doctors to alleviate the problem that they're presented with in the moment where the doctor's dealing with pain in the moment and, you know, the addiction is down the road. That's, that's somebody else's problem. Are doctors forced under the pressure of whether it be economics or, or just time constraints to deal with the patient in the moment? And if baby has an ear infection, you deal with that. And if they, if they get obesity and diabetes a few years later, that's really just, that's somebody else's problem. Is it just a matter of educating doctors to understand the, the ripple effects? Or is there, there's something kind of almost inevitable about the prioritization of immediate fixes? No, it is not inevitable. And again, th this is a longer story. I, I can just tell you that whenever you look at antibiotic prescribing, the first thing that you find is that there's tremendous variability among prescribers. There, there's not just one kind of thing, whether you look within a state, within a country, there's variation. Some doctors prescribe more and some prescribe less. It's, it's very characteristic of that doctor's practice. That's point number one. The second point is that doctors, sometimes the, the patients come in and they say, you know, give me an antibiotic. I don't feel well, give me an antibiotic. And the doctor is under pressure to do that. And they don't want to lose their patient. They know that if they don't, the patient will go to somebody else who, who will give it to them because of this variation. Another thing is that giving antibiotics makes doctors and nurse practitioners and physician assistants, it makes them feel powerful. They, they think, well, I'm going to do something that's really going to help that person. Even in the cases when the use is, is marginal, which is, as I said, is most of the time. So there, there's a very funny psychology about antibiotics, in part because of, of our belief in, of its miraculous nature. Last year, I published a paper with three anthropologists about, about reasons, accounting for the reasons for the variability antibiotic use. And it's, it's economic, it's psychological. It, it's a very, it's a, it's a complex, it's, it's kind of like the story of humans. And interestingly, in that paper, we showed a graph of the uh, variation in antibiotic use in the United States by state. And what's clear is that, well, I'll give you some numbers. A, a few years ago, the national average of antibiotic use in the United States was 833 courses per 1,000 population. That's per year. That's five courses for every six people. And that rate has been pretty constant for many years. Year after year, five courses for every six people. But when you look at the map, you see that there are big regional differences. Northeast, it's about the national rate. Midwest, it's about the national rate. In the West, it's much lower. It's, it's like 650. And in the South, it's 950. There's a 50% difference in the rate of antibiotic prescribing in the South compared to the West. There is no 50% difference in the rate of serious bacterial infections. This reflects the practice of medicine and the culture of birth. This is true across all age groups. It's been true year after year. What's interesting is that if you superimpose that map of the variation in antibiotic use and the map of opioid use, it's the same map. You see the same characteristics. So whatever is predisposing providers in a given state to, pre 
make antibiotics, it's the same thing with opiates. Interestingly, we found a third map that looks about the same, and that's the map of church attendance in the United States. And church attendance is about belief in higher authority, and in that case, the higher authority of God. And antibiotics are a kind of higher authority also. Doctors practice and use a lot of antibiotics. They, they are psychologically higher authorities as well. They're very interesting power. And the fourth map that I'll tell you about, uh, which we did, wasn't in that paper, but was in another paper we published, is that if you take the map of antibiotic variation use and the map of obesity in the United States, they are superimposing. And, and that's one of the many pieces of evidence that antibiotics are part of the obesity epidemic. Well, maybe we can talk about that because I think you discussed the use of antibiotics in livestock in, in the book. And if anything, we use more antibiotics with livestock than humans. And I, I read recently that China, they use, I think, 10 times as much antibiotics per capita than they do here in the U.S. I found that. About, about five times. Okay. About five times as much. Now, is that, is that in humans or is that in humans plus livestock? And that's in humans, and the livestock use is also enormous in Turner. Here's the point, and that is that about 75 years ago, agricultural scientists found that if you feed low doses of antibiotics to livestock, they'll grow faster. They, they get bigger, and they get bigger faster, so you can bring them to market earlier. So, you know, for a few pennies of antibiotics in their food or water, you can improve production by 10 or 15% and you can do it faster. So this is what's called growth promotion. And the reason that farmers do this is because it works. That's why so much antibiotics are used, not just in the United States, all over the world. The farmers are using antibiotics to promote the growth of livestock. And that's, in, in fact, for me, I have a few eureka moments in my career. One of the eureka moments happened almost 20 years ago when I was, when I was guiding a young doctor who was thinking about a, a career in endocrinology and he was wondering if he would do work in, about obesity. I said, well, you know that farmers use antibiotics to fatten up their farm animals. And just as I said that, all of a sudden I thought to myself, well, I wonder if that's what we're doing to our kids. That put me on the path where I am today, which is to study the, the validity of that statement. And we, we found a lot of evidence that supports that point. And one, one of the things that the farmers found is that the earlier in life they start the antibiotics, bigger the effect. So this means that it's a developmental phenomenon. It's happening as babies, as kids are developing. Well, a couple of things about that. First of all, why do you suppose it seems like the dominant perspective on the sources of obesity in the United States focuses on, on diet, right? On, you know, what we, we eat, but it seems like the, the antibiotic story is much more compelling because, you know, people have had access to caloric food for you know, a really, really long time. So one question is, you know, why has causal mechanism failed to become more widely understood? And then maybe dig into the actual mechanism, right? So why is it that antibiotics promote rapid growth, particularly in fat tissue? You know, I think 
part of the answer to your question is because of our mindset of antibiotics is miraculous. We've given antibiotics a past. You know, we, we just, it's a sacred cow. But again, that, that's one of the reasons I wrote Missing Microbes is to bring this to people's attention. I, 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 I lecture and speak all over the country, all over the world about these topics to, to educate people. And I think at some level, people are beginning to understand through my efforts and many other efforts, uh, it, it's happening. But part of it is it's not just to talk about an idea because ideas come along all the time. The ideas are a dime a dozen. But the question is, is there evidence for the idea? And so I've been working now for the last 15 years on both studies in, in, in humans, especially in children, and experimental studies in animals so that we can look for causality. First, I'll tell you about the observational studies in humans. So last year with colleagues at the Mayo Clinic, we published a paper about antibiotic use and childhood diseases. This was a study that was conducted in Olmsted County, Minnesota. That's the county where the Mayo Clinic is. And it's a very stable population. People don't leave, people don't come. So that, and they get almost all their care through the Mayo Clinic and its affiliated hospitals. So it, it's a very good database. And there've been many, many studies of Olmsted County, Minnesota. So we, we studied all the children born in Olmsted County over about a 10 year period. In, in total, we studied about 14,000 children. And we had records about their antibiotic exposure in the first two years of life. And we had records about the illnesses that they got until they were on average about 13 years old. And so we considered an exposure period, that is the antibiotics that they received until the age of two, and then a disease period after two to see what would happen. And we studied 10 different problems. And I can just tell you that these problems included asthma, food allergies, eczema or atopic dermatitis, celiac disease, overweight, obesity, autism, learning disabilities, ADHD. I think I've left out one or two, but we studied all of them together. And what we found is that antibiotic exposure in the first two years of life was associated with a higher rate of disease for all 10 of them. And in eight of the 10, the differences were statistically significant. So for example, one of the strongest ones was the association with asthma. Kids who got antibiotics in the first two years of life were more than twice as likely to develop asthma in the subsequent years as kids who weren't exposed to antibiotics. We showed that the more courses of antibiotics they received, the more likely they were to have these diagnoses. We showed that the earlier in life that they were exposed, they were more likely to get these diseases. And we showed that some antibiotics were worse than others, which was quite interesting. And that was something that was a little unexpected. It's something that we're following up on. Subsequently, I've been working with colleagues looking at a database of 1 million children in Britain. And basically, we recapitulate the findings that we found in the Mayo Clinic study that exposure to antibiotics early in life was associated with increased risk of essentially the same diseases and that there was a strong dose response. More doses, the higher the risk. This, this idea that, that the effects are cumulative. So these, are, these studies are what are called association studies. They show that 
A is associated with the later occurrence of event B, but that's, that's correlation. And we know that correlation alone isn't cause, but it gets your attention. And I point out these two studies that we've recently done because we're looking at multiple diagnoses in parallel. There have been many studies, at least 50 studies now, that have tied antibiotics to obesity, to asthma, to juvenile arthritis, to celiac disease, you name it. But these studies looked at all of them across. So there's a big body of data about association. But if we really want to understand cause, then we have to do experiments. And we experiment in animals, uh, in our, our test animals. And so we began to do studies in mice in which we would expose them to antibiotics or not. And then we would see what would happen to them, what would happen to their microbiome. And our, our first big series of studies uh, was led by uh, Dr. Il-Sung Cho, who's a postdoctoral fellow in my lab. And that was a study that was published in Nature, actually a big study with about 50 different figures in it. In that, in that study, we gave antibiotics at the midpoint of the, of the FDA's allowable range on the farm to the mice, four different antibiotic regimens. And we showed that the mice put on more fat. And that was our first evidence that antibiotics change metabolism. We showed that it changed the energy flow from food through the intestine to the liver. We showed that the liver was making more fat and it was packaging more fat to send it out to the periphery. So this, again, this was our first evidence that antibiotics were changing metabolism. So then we did more mouse studies. One of our important studies is a study we called FATSTAT. We asked if antibiotics make mice fat, what happens if we, if we give them more calories? The diet hypothesis that you mentioned, would they become fat? Would they become fatter? So we had four groups of mice. Mice that were on normal food that didn't get antibiotics, mice that got antibiotics alone, mice that got high-fat diet alone, and mice that got both. And what we found is that when we fed them antibiotics, as we expected, they got fatter. If we fed them high-fat diet, they got fatter. And if we fed them both together, they got very fat. And this was true in both male mice and female mice, although the effect was higher in female mice, which shows you that life is unfair. We, we showed that it changed metabolism of the liver, and we showed that it changed immune cells in the gut and the development of immunity. And, and then we did two, two further important experiments. In, in the first experiment I told you about, they were getting the antibiotics for their whole life. But we asked, how about if we just give them a short course of antibiotics, will we get the effect? And the answer is that we did. If we start the antibiotics early in life, right, the, the first few weeks of life, we got the full effect, and, and then we stopped. And then we asked, what, what are the antibiotics doing to the microbiome? So we, we studied the microbiome. We studied mice that got antibiotics or not. And in the first few weeks, we could see a little difference that mice that got the antibiotics or not. And then we looked at the group that we gave antibiotics to for four weeks and then stopped. And the group that continued on antibiotics, the groups that never saw antibiotics. And what we found is that the group that never saw antibiotics, their microbiome had a pattern here. And the ones that were on antibiotics, they had a pattern here. 
and the ones that were on antibiotics and stopped, their pattern had come back to the norm. So that the, the short antibiotic course had a transient effect on the microbiome, but it had a permanent effect on their, on their growth. And that showed us that there are critical developmental windows, that if you alter the microbiome during a critical window, there are long-term consequences. We showed that we could transfer the effect. We, could, we took the poop from one mouse and we transferred it to germ-free mice. And we showed that we could get the full effect that way too. So that the signal was in the altered microbiome. And we've, could, we've done m- many experiments now on asthma, on juvenile diabetes, on inflammatory bowel disease, all, all showing these same kind of principles. So this is fascinating because it's not simply about the, the quantity of antibiotics that people are exposed to, but kind of the, the timing of it. And the earlier the administration, the kind of bigger the impact will be in the long run. And I think children today are given, it's kind of routine administration of antibiotics, even from at the moment of birth, they, they, they're exposed to some antibiotics and presumably they're exposed right. to substantial amounts while still in, in the womb. I'm going to tell you kind of the worst news, and then we'll change to happier subjects, how we're going to fix this. But uh, I can just say that in respect to what you said, the average child in the U.S., by the time they're two, they've gotten about three courses of antibiotics. And by the time they're 10, they've had about 10 courses of antibiotics. So antibiotic use is, is quite widespread. Again, there are differences between children. That's why we can do these studies and see the differences. But on average, average U.S. child's getting three courses. There are studies of kids in, in the slums of Pakistan and India where they're getting 10 courses of antibiotics in the first year of life alone because their parents are concerned about their health. They go to the neighborhood pharmacy, and the pharmacist is happy to sell them an antibiotic. Every time an antibiotic is used, money changes hands. That's another piece. But the piece that I'm going to tell you about that's the most worrisome to me is, well, actually, before I tell you this, about 13 years ago, we postulated that our microbiome is stepping down across generations, that, that, that each generation is having a more and more depleted microbiome. And un- unfortunately... And, and by depleted, you mean less less diversity? That's right. It's like diversity is, it's like if you go to a zoo, there are some zoos that have 500 species. There are some zoos that only have 200 species. In, in studies that my wife led in the Amazon, she looked at uh, people in the Amazon, they have twice the diversity that we do. And there's evidence that basically theirs is normal and we are losing diversity. We, we, we have lost about half of our diversity. So th- this is all... This is kind of theoretical work, uh, but we, we actually have experimental results. Well, we have observational results, but then we did an experiment. And, and there's a little complicated experiment, but I'm going to explain it to you. So we work with germ-free mice. These are mice that have no bacteria. They're, bacteria. they're mice that are born in a bubble. And what's nice about germ-free mice is that we can give them any bacteria we want and colonize them or any group of bacteria. So we, we can give a germ-free mouse poop from another mouse and then see what's going to happen. So we did an experiment with an inbred group of mice. These, these are mice that are likely to get inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. They're called IL-10 knockout mice. 
and their colon becomes very inflamed. That's normal. We studied germ-free mice that were IL-10 knockout. And we decided that we would conventionalize them, that we would give them poop back, either normal poop from a mouse or poop that had been perturbed by an antibiotic. So we, we conventionalized these mice, but it turns out that the mice that we studied by design were pregnant mice. So the pregnant germ-free mice got normal poop or they got antibiotic perturbed poop. And now they were conventionalized. The pregnant mice soon gave birth to their babies and we followed the babies till they were middle-aged. And, and then we looked at their intestines and we looked at their microbiome. The first thing is that the antibiotic perturbed poop that they inherited from their moms was very deformed. It, the abnormality lasted into the next generation. But then we, since these were IL-10 knockout mice, we looked at their colon to see. And what we found is that the mice whose mother got the normal poop, they had the normal amount of colitis, of inflammation of the colon. But the pups whose mothers got the abnormal poop, their colons were markedly inflamed. They, they had 30 times more inflammation than the other. A very dramatic results. Now, what, what's important here to note is that those pups never saw an antibiotic. In fact, their mother never saw an antibiotic. All their mother saw was antibiotic perturbed poop. That meant that the disease signal was in the poop. It meant that the disease signal was inherited from the mother to the baby. So that meant that the enhanced disease signal here was entirely microbial. That when we think of inheritance, we think about host gene, human genes. But this means that the microbes and the genes of the microbes that we inherit are part of inheritance. And you talk about that with H. pylori, right? So the Native Americans in the Amazon jungle have East Asian, right, H. pylori, and Americans have, you know, predominantly European H. H. pylori. And so the, the primary means for the transmission of our microbiome is from mother to child, right? Yes, right. What we call vertical transmission from, from mother to generation after generation. That's right. And so the act of birth is, is a, an extremely important event for this transmission. You, you spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about the uh, sections and the kind of the increase in the number of cesareans is having a, a, a big impact on our microbiome. Yes. Yeah. So, so the point is that for every animal, not just humans, for every animal, there is an intergenerational transfer of microbes from moms to babies. It, it's certainly true for all mammals. And in mammals, we were conceived in a womb that is essentially sterile. And our first big exposure to the world of microbes is when the water breaks and the baby descends through the birth canal. They're covered with mom's microbes. And they swallow mom's microbes. That's their first big inoculation. And then that's, that's the founding microbiota and everything begins there. And then the microbiome is choreographed. There's a very, you can look at the microbiome of kids all over the world. It has the same general characteristic. And that's the way it's been since time immemorial. And when you, when you look at apes, you, you find very similar kinds of patterns. So there, there's this intergenerational pattern and we are messing it up in at least three important ways. Number one is cesarean section, as you point out. When babies are born by cesarean section, they don't go through the birth canal. 
they miss that trip through the birth canal. In studies that we've done, have shown that their microbiota does not normalize until after a year. First year of life, they've got an abnormal microbiome. And you'd say, well, you know, so that's not too common. Well, it turns out that in the United States, one baby out of three is born by C-section today. In some countries, more than 50% of babies are born by C-section. It's kind of a medical fad that has gone out of control. And some of these countries that have high C-section rates are Ecuador. They're Iran, they're Egypt, they're, mm -hmm. they're Brazil. They're, they're countries that you don't think of as, as the centers for medical learning or knowledge. Sweden is very low, right? And Holland. And, it's very Holland, yeah. right. So the countries with advanced medicine, C-section rates are 14 to 18%. Probably the, the real rate of C-section should be somewhere around 10 to 15%. In the U.S., a few generations ago, it was 18%. Now it's 32%. So th this, is, this is a kind of medical fad where everybody's happy about C-sections. The doctors are happy. They don't have to get up in the middle of the night. The hospitals are happy. They can build more. And the mothers are happy. They don't have to go through labor. It's great for everybody. Insurance companies are happy. Uh, it's great for everybody except for the baby. So that's one big hit. Second big hit is is antibiotics. The moms, more than 50% of the moms in the United States who are pregnant are receiving antibiotics during pregnancy, during the time leading up to and during that intergenerational transfer of microbes. And, and babies, as of course, as I mentioned, are getting a lot of antibiotics. And then the third thing is that, that nature designed a perfect food for babies. It's called breast milk. And that's what all mammals do. That's the definition of a mammal is that they, they're born in a womb and they drink milk. Whether they're cows or mice or, or people, they're drinking milk. And milk is designed to, it has chemicals that support the beneficial microbes. And the formula kind of looks like breast milk, but it's not. It's, it's similar in macronutrients, but it's missing a lot of the micronutrients that make breast milk such a perfect food. So breast milk is designed to nourish the baby and to nourish the right microbes. So we're, so we're antibiotics, cesarean section, breast milk, all of these things are messing up the microbiome at the critical time, just when the microbiome is forming. So the question is, what trajectory is the microbiome going to go in? Is it going to go in this trajectory or is it going to go in that trajectory? We have evidence that the trajectory is different and that those, the early effects on the trajectory affect development. They develop metabolic development telling the fat cells how much energy they should save or spend. They, they affect immunological development, you know, what's a friend and what's a foe. And they affect cognitive development as well. So this is enough to keep me busy. Well, I mean, if we look at the amount of money that's devoted to research and the amount of labor that's devoted to different aspects of research and medicine, it seems like, you know, the genome project gets all the attention. We're investing huge amounts in understanding the human genome and developing drugs that are built on that knowledge. But it seems like the, the, the microbiome, the marginal benefit to research in this area seems, seems so much higher. It seems like there's so much more to know here and, and maybe, you know, so much more that we can develop in the way of drugs 
right, that could potentially help regenerate the microbiome or come up with ways of getting the good from antibiotics without having to deal with the, the bad. I, again, you, you have a little bit on probiotics and prebiotics, and I think the jury's still out on that. But, you know, I've received antibiotics probably a dozen times in, in my adult life. And, and, I, and I don't think, recall a single time when any doctor ever even mentioned any potential disruption to my microbiome. I went and got myself some probiotics thinking maybe you know, it might help, but I, I don't recall anybody saying anything about that. Why aren't we researching more? Why aren't we doing more research in this area? Why isn't the microbiome project considered to be kind of more potentially fruitful than, say, the, the genome project? Well, the, the genome project has shown a lot of fruit, and there's more and more research in the microbiome, for sure. It, it, it's, it's growing, you know, probably geometrically. I, I think you know, research, all research is good. And there are interactions between the genome, between human cells and microbial cells. And there has been a lot of, there's been a lot of interest in the microbiome. You know, one of the issues is with all new scientific, microbiome is a scientific revolution. With all revolutions, there's hype. And, you know, everybody thinks they're going to get rich, rich quick tomorrow. And they're going to, we're going to come up with wonderful drug tomorrow. But it's going to take time. We have to build the scientific infrastructure so that we can really understand what's going on. And, and there's tremendous microbiome diversity. The general outlines of my microbiome and your microbiome are similar, but the details are all different. And we're going to have to understand those differences so that we can come up with good solutions. Another problem is that there are all these readily available so-called solutions, like what are probiotics that, that you can buy at the health food store or at the pharmacy or the grocery store. There are hundreds and hundreds of products. What's remarkable is that they essentially are untested. There have been essentially no solid, really good, robust studies to say, okay, is this good for this condition? Is it or not? And interestingly, this idea of taking a probiotic after an antibiotic you know, at some level, it makes sense, except when scientists in Israel studied the question, will, will the, how, how soon will the microbiome recover if you take an antibiotic or if you follow up with a probiotic? And it turned out that in both mice and people, the recovery was slower after the probiotic. And in retrospect, it's not surprising because the probiotic is a second hit. It's a second perturbation. So this is the same kind of pseudoscience that that and people are buying probiotics by the millions. And so I actually think there's a great future for probiotics, but they will be probiotics that are developed by science and that will be used for specific purposes. And it may be that your doctor will do a study of your poop and they'll say, okay, in your condition, you need probiotic number 33. And, and for me, it'll be probiotic number 22. We have to do the science that is going to get us there. But I focus a lot on early life because it's so important. But there, there's a huge interaction between microbiome and cancer. There, there's evidence starting with our work and others about helicobacter and stomach cancer and the lack of helicobacter and esophageal cancer. We're very interested in estrogen and the microbiome, which affects breast, ovarian, and endometrial cancers. 
people who look at tumors find that a tumor has a microbiome that is, is part of the tumor environment. And, you know, one of the questions is, can we better diagnose cancers by understanding the microbial component of their tumor? Can we better prognose who's going to do well and who's not? And can we better treat by taking into account the microbiota contribution to the tumor as well? So these, these are very exciting frontiers because essentially all tumors that have been looked at have their own little microbiome. Well, in this book, Missing Microbes, you tell us about some fascinating findings of your research and others. But I think even more importantly, you list a whole bunch of research possibilities and agendas <laughs> and the number of questions uh, far exceed the number of answers. So it's been fascinating chatting with you, Martin. The book is called Missing Microbes. So much more to do. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your attention. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.